You're listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church, Van Alstine. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Now here's Pastor Mike. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Last Sunday, uh, we started a new series of messages called Hold Firm, Getting a Grip on the Confession of Our Faith. And in this series, we are studying some of the foundational principles and the doctrines uh, which guide our faith and our practice. And uh, we discussed last week how uh, these doctrines are clarified in what we call the Baptist faith and message. And uh, if you weren't here last week, we did a quick uh, historical review uh, going back to 1925 when uh, the first Baptist faith and message, that's when it was uh, first known by that name, uh, basically, uh, was adopted by the Southern Baptist Convention, and then later in 1963, uh, and then there is uh, a change in 1998, uh, which added Article 18, the family. Uh, then in 1999, uh, there was uh, significant action taken to put together a blue ribbon committee that would do a full review of the Baptist faith and message, and uh, that was done and adopted in the year 2000. And so that is the latest version of the Baptist faith and message that we have. Uh, You might remember that last week uh, we had uh, laid a foundation for this series by looking at Paul's writing to Titus there in Titus chapter 1, uh, verse number 9. And so uh, with that thought in mind, Titus chapter 1, verse number 9 says this, and this is again Paul writing to Titus and he's giving him uh, the qualifications for leadership, uh, for church leadership particularly, and qualifications for elders. And in that he says in verse number 9, he must Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And we use the visual image of the sword. Uh, it's in Scripture, the Word of God is often referred to as the sword, the sword of the Spirit, a two edged sword piercing. Uh, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And so uh, we talked about the importance of getting a firm grip on the sword, the word of God, the trustworthy word as taught, as Paul described it here uh, to Titus. But then we also talked about the the tendency and uh, the temptation uh, to pick up some other stuff, Uh, some things that are really cheap substitutes for the trustworthy word as taught. And so let's do a quick review of those. And I used this little uh, antique baseball bat that was my dad's when he was a kid uh, from the the early 1940s uh, to represent those other things that we might be tempted to pick up and hold firm to in place of, or maybe we try to to hold onto them in conjunction with the word of God, but that that doesn't work well. And so uh, we looked at and considered the latest fad teaching. Easy to do. Man, new stuff. Everybody likes something new, right? Here comes some new stuff, and and it'll be described in some cases as new truth. All right? Well, the Word of God makes it clear that there is no new truth. All right? So big red flag. Somebody comes along and says, hey, I got this new new truth. No one's ever discovered it before. God's revealed it only to me. And uh, be careful of the latest fad teaching. Another thing that's easy to pick up, the traditions of man. The traditions of man. Now, much of what we study in Scripture, we would consider traditional in nature, and it's being passed down in that way. But we're talking about uh, something completely different when we say the traditions of man. Very easy to do, okay? Uh, Very tempting to pick up the traditions of man. 
Uh, we also talked about how some are tempted today to pick up a political platform and to hold firm to that. That's what's most important. That's what they're holding firm to, is some kind of political ideology and equating that with the faith even. Uh, and then certainly personal preference. I mean, we all have our preferences, right? I have some things that I prefer over others, even as it relates to church, church life, worship, all of those things. Um, but we've got to be careful that that's not what we are uh, holding on to over and above anything else, and that is uh, personal preference. And so some cheap substitutes there, some things that I would encourage you to, to analyze, to look at, to even uh, perhaps lay aside and make certain uh, with clarity that you are picking up, holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. One of the things that I find lacking among many Christians today is a firm grip on doctrinal truth, a firm grip on the confession of our faith. Uh, now, I know when, when you mention doctrine many times, the word doctrine, many things come to mind. Uh, for some of you, uh, maybe the word conjures up images of a stuffy classroom with a lecturer standing up front uh, and droning on endlessly about theological matters. All right? Some would refer to doctrine as kind of the technical side of their faith. For others, doctrine is frightening, uh, perhaps because you feel somewhat uh, academically inadequate or biblically illiterate to the point that the complexities of theology just scare you. I think I could point out a number of people in our church who have been for much of their lives students of the Word of God, and they would tell you, in spite of the fact that they've spent countless hours in much of their lives studying the Word of God, they don't have a firm grasp on some of the complexities of theology and, and of doctrine. And then for others, doctrine seems so far removed from their everyday experience that they struggle to live out their faith in practical ways. Gavin Ortland um, recently wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition entitled, When Should Doctrine Divide? Remember we talked about, some would look at doctrine and the study of doctrine and say, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just hold hands, sing kumbaya, and say, we believe the Bible? Because there are a lot of crazy people who would say, we believe the Bible. And in this particular article, Gavin Ortland, he talks about his own journey um, as it relates to some doctrinal issues and, and where that kind of left him and where now he has landed, so to speak. Uh, but in this article, he does a great job of identifying two opposite dangers as it relates to doctrine and what we believe and why we believe it. One he describes as doctrinal minimalism. The other he describes as doctrinal separatism. And these two dangers represent opposite ends of the spectrum. A doctrinal minimalist is someone that would lean toward doctrinal indifference. They're the person who would say it really doesn't matter. Really doesn't matter what you believe. A doctrinal minimalist is the kind of person who would tend to take, to take two, two schools of thought, which both cannot be true at the same time, and would say that they're equally valid. I'll give you an example. Uh, they will take the ideology, the thinking, the teaching, that, that is found even in our country, particularly in certain areas, that, that denies the deity of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, if, if, if someone ever knocks on your door as uh, representing a church of any kind or anything like that, a great question to ask them is, tell me what you believe about Jesus Christ. Tell me what you believe about the deity of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh? 
the deity of Jesus Christ. So there's some who would deny that. They would say that Jesus is a created being. They would say he was really a good teacher, a great prophet, um, but, but a created being nonetheless, certainly not God, okay? Not God come in the flesh. And then those of us who hold to scriptural teaching about this very subject would say, we believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, a doctrinal minimalist will take those two things and say, yeah, either one's valid, but that can't possibly be true. A person who says that, that, that two opposing truths that cannot both be true at the same time are equally valid is not being intellectually honest. And so they've, they, they've, they've minimalized the importance of what we believe, particularly on key issues. Uh, and so we've got to be very careful that we avoid doctrinal minimalism. Just writing it off is not that important. Those same people are the ones who would say, really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in your beliefs. A doctrinal minimalist is the kind of person who will say, you know, when it's all said and done, we're all going to the same place. All roads lead to heaven. That's the doctrinal minimalist. Then, on the other end of that spectrum, you've got the doctrinal separatist. That's the person who will take even secondary doctrinal issues and will, will find division over those things. Okay? They become very, very focused, very, very, uh, very, I mean, look, dive deep down in, and if there's, I mean, any disagreement, even on secondary issues that maybe even Scripture is not super clear on, if you don't agree with me on these issues, and then many times they even add some of their own stuff that's extra biblical. Sometimes it's related to outward appearance and what we wear or don't wear, certain things like that. And they would, they would take those things and they would lump that all together and become a doctrinal uh, separatist. They would say, hey, even on these, these secondary issues, we're going to divide over that. So if you don't believe just like I do on all of these things right here, we're not going to have anything to do with each other. That too is dangerous. Got to be very careful. So understand this. Doctrine teaches us how to think. And how we think always determines how we act. If we don't think right, then we will not act right. Doctrine is the the foundation upon which our practice is built. It's so important that we know what we believe and why we believe it, particularly in the culture in which we live today. There's so many... I mean, we live in a day when it's considered wrong to say that anything is wrong. And if you make a truth statement, a truth claim... Then people would go, oh, immediately you're labeled as some, you're judgmental or, or something of that nature. And so we've got to know what we believe and why we believe it. The Bible tells us that Jesus taught doctrinally, that he preached doctrinally. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it says that after Jesus finished preaching arguably the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, that the people were astonished at his teaching. That's his doctrine. And so he taught doctrinally. Doctrine is really a systematic way of understanding Scripture. Doctrinal studies give us a a panoramic view of Scripture and allow us to gain a clear understanding of of scriptural teaching on any given subject. In fact, in the original language, the word translated doctrine literally means uh, instruction, teaching, or that which is taught. It carries the idea of a more developed set of truths or practices which are to be learned and followed. That's the foundation of our understanding of what doctrine is. All right, And so again, my goal is not to fuel the fires of your theological arrogance so that you can then go talk to your friends who may disagree with you on certain issues and say, I'm right, you're wrong, so you just got to deal with it. Okay, That's not what we're trying to do here. 
We're trying to add clarity to some of these things. And again, it's important that I, as your pastor, make certain that we are clear on what it is we believe and why we believe it. Now let's, let's, let's talk history for just a minute. All right? I like history, particularly church history. And if you study church history, you will find that the first few centuries, really, of church history, the big question of that period was, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, it's still an important issue, isn't it? That's why I said, hey, somebody knocks on your door, you're not real sure what it is they believe or who they represent. They may even throw out a name to you, but you're going, well, what, do you, what do those people really believe? Ask them about the deity of Jesus Christ. That was the big question during those first few centuries of church history. And it was not until really 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea that settled that question, affirming the humanity and the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call that the hypostatic union. Okay, We're not going to delve off into all of that today, but, but, but that was the big question during uh, the first few centuries of church history. And then for, for really more than a thousand years after that, the big question became, what is the church? What is the church? And you'll hear people say today, we're all children of God. But scripturally speaking, that's not true. We're all God's creation, but, but, but in the truest sense, theologically speaking, we are not all God's children. Well, that became a big question during that next thousand or so years. What, what is the church? What makes up the church? And it was during that period that the Roman Catholic Church particularly sought to be recognized as the only true church. And then the Reformation came. We talked about that briefly last week, how uh, coming up here in October, we're, uh, th- that will mark the, the 500th anniversary uh, of uh, Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses to the door there at Wittenberg. Um, it, the, the Reformation came, and in the early 16th century there, uh, there was this renewed understanding of the gospel that was really ushered in by Martin Luther and others, who preached that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Uh, And that our salvation could not be dependent upon anyone other than Jesus Christ. Now that's a bold claim, isn't it? That's an exclusive claim. Uh, And so for someone to say, well, really all roads lead to heaven, would make Jesus a liar, because Jesus himself said in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus didn't say, I am one of many ways, I am a good way. He didn't even say, I'm the best way. He said, I am the way. So it's important what we believe and why we believe it. Now, since the Reformation, the questions have shifted from the Son of God, from who is Jesus, and the family of God, what is the church, to the Word of God. To the Word of God. And so the big battle during the last several centuries has been over the nature and the authority of Scripture. What is Scripture? How can we know that it is God's Word? Why did God give us His Word? Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? Is it authoritative? What is it that we really believe about the Bible? Is it just good literature? Is it just some of the best literature ever written? What is it that we believe about the Scriptures? And so that is Article 1 of the Baptist Faith and Message, the Scriptures. And so with that, then, let's turn our attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And again, this is like like, uh, Paul's letter to Titus is a pastoral epistle. Paul is writing to the younger Timothy, his young protege in the faith. He would call both those guys his children, his children in the faith. 
And so he's now here encouraging Timothy, um, understanding about the godlessness that would be in what he described even then as the last days. And then you'll remember in chapter 4, it's where uh, Paul charged Timothy with those words, preach the word. Preach the word, right? Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke. You know, that, that's in chapter 4. Well, just before that, in really verses 14 through 17, we find these words. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing that from whom you learned, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, please don't miss this, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What a powerful word to young Timothy and then to us as well. Now let's look at the, the actual Article 1 of the Baptist Faith and Message, okay? Article number 1 is uh, entitled, The Scriptures. And so I want you to actually see the wording, and this comes directly from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It says, The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the truth center of Christian union and, to, and, and the supreme standard, this is important, the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, meaning confessions of faith, Baptist faith and message, this is the standard by which all of those, even religious opinions, should be tried. In other words, this is the standard, right? This is the standard, the Word of God. All Scripture, it goes on to say, is a testimony to Christ, who's the central figure of Scripture, right? Again, that's why we say we're biblically based, Christ-centered, and gospel-driven, because we believe that Jesus Christ is the central figure of all of God's Word. All of God's Word. Who is himself the focus of divine revelation. And so there is Article 1 of the Baptist Faith and Message. Now we know that that statement is biblically based. And I want you to see that this morning. We just looked at there at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now I want us to consider some important words, some important terms, as it relates to the, first the nature of Scripture. The nature of Scripture. So as we seek to understand the nature of Scripture, here are some terms I want us to, to grapple with a bit. Okay, The first one is the word inspired. Inspired. You've already seen that. Okay, You've seen it both in the Second Timothy text here, and you've seen it in the Baptist Faith and Message statement, Article 1. The word inspired. Uh, the Baptist Faith and Message actually states it this way. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely what? Inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. Again, our text says the same thing. Now, the word scripture, the term scripture, comes from the Greek term graphe, and it means writing. Uh, the, the term translated as inspired in our English Bibles, uh, actually, it's a compound term in the original language. It's the word theopneustos, and it, it's comprised of uh, the word for God, theos, and, and breath. Okay, so it's God breath, God breathed. So the term describes the scriptures as breathed out by God. 
Now that's important. Now the Baptist faith and message also affirms the human nature of Scripture. Okay, it's a, it's a human divine book. Okay, here's what Peter wrote, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced, this is important, by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God's Word is God-breathed. In other words, the Holy Spirit operated on men to direct them towards a goal. Peter focused on three ideas in in just those couple of verses there. First, Scripture did not originate in the will of the human author. Okay, So we know that that God used some 40 human authors to, to pen his word. Okay, but it's not like those 40 authors sat down one day and were like, hey, I'm going to write some stuff, and then God said, that's pretty good. I think I'll approve that. Okay, that's not how it works. That's not what happened. That would be called, that's that's called the dynamic view of, of, of inspiration. That's not what we believe. And we'll get to what we do believe here in just a moment. But Peter makes it clear. This book didn't come at the will of, of, of human authors. Secondly, the human authors spoke for God. For God, not, not, not just as secretaries, okay? It's not as if God, and they just kind of, you know, they took dictation. That's not how it worked either, all right? And then, thirdly, the Spirit carried along these human agents or these human authors. So that indicates that the power of the mover, the Spirit, carried the human agent to a goal. And so God has revealed himself to all of humanity through, we know, through creation in what we call general revelation, But general revelation by itself was not sufficient to tell us all that God wanted us to know about himself and his plan for humanity. And so that's why he gives us the scriptures. So scripture at its core is God's written revelation to man. God's written revelation of himself to us. And it's the only source available to us of certain knowledge about God. Without Scripture, we'd be kind of left on our own to figure out who He is. What what is God like? How how can we relate to Him? Scripture is God's written revelation of Himself to us. Now again, you think back historically, the the, the ancient Egyptians, they had no written revelation of their gods, like like we have from our God. No, they didn't didn't have this this certain word that we have about God and and how we can relate to him. And that's why if if you go back and you look at the ruins of their temples, uh, you'll find that they're filled with depictions of their gods as, in many cases, half animal and half man. Because the only thing that they knew to do was to imagine their gods after their own image and after the image of created things. And so, because we have the scriptures... God's revelation of himself to humanity, we're not left to wonder. We we, we don't have to just kind of wander in the darkness trying to imagine who God is and what he is like. Scripture tells us these things. So the Bible is God's written revelation of himself to us. Now when the Bible says that all Scripture is inspired by God, that's speaking of a a special kind of inspiration. Okay, some of you, uh, uh, you're artistic, uh, some of you are artistic um, in, in terms of being able to paint or to draw. Some of you are artistic musically. You can even maybe compose music, for example. And maybe there have been times that you felt like you were inspired. I mean, I know when I stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon, it was inspiring to me. 
I, I mean, it inspired me to, to worship God, who I believe created all of this. But, but the, the inspiration that we're talking about here is different from the kind of inspiration that you might have experienced as an artist, as a painter, or as a, as a composer. Okay, it's, it's different. Okay, so what is it that we're really talking about? The doctrine or the, te- the teaching of inspiration of Scripture tells us that Scripture is an accurate transference of truth from God to man in language that we can understand. And we hold to what a, a view of inspiration that is known as verbal plenary inspiration or plenary inspiration. Simply put, here's an illustration of it. I, when I was in, even up through college, I played a trumpet. Okay, now a trumpet just laying there by itself it ain't going to do much for you, right? No, it has to be picked up, and, and the musician has to blow air into the horn. You've got, you got to put your lips together like this, and you've got to make your lips buzz. If you play a brass instrument, man, you know that's where it's at. It's all about the buzz of the lips, right? You know, that's how you can make a sound. That's why I'm proficient on the shofar as well. Um, okay, okay, so until I blow my breath into that instrument, it's not going to make a sound, is it? Well, that's kind of the idea behind inspiration. As God inspired these human authors, they were not just taking dictation. Miraculously, God was able to transfer exactly what he wanted us to get, but he was able to do it through the personalities and the temperaments of these human authors. That's why it's different when you read Paul and when you read Peter, for example. You can see their personalities come out in their writing, and that's how God intended it. It's it's an amazing concept. Uh, and so uh, inspiration is a word that we need to understand, or the, the word of God is inspired. Here's the second one. The word of God is truthful. The word of God is truthful. And if you were paying attention a moment ago, when we looked at the, the, the first article here in the scriptures, it said this, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. All scripture totally true and trustworthy. That's an affirmation of the Bible's inerrancy and infallibility. Every direct affirmation of the Bible is truthful. So the truth of the Bible is not limited just to religion. Okay, in other words, we know that the Bible is not just a science textbook. We know it's not just a history textbook. But as it speaks to those areas, we know that it is absolutely truthful. And there are two arguments that support the truthfulness of Scripture. One is the nature of God. God is not a God of error. Okay, God never has to say, oops. God, God doesn't ever have to say, anybody seen my eraser? God, God never has to, you know, hit the backspace, delete. No, God's not a God of error, okay? And then, and then there's also the nature of Jesus' understanding of Scripture. So first, God is not a God of error. Second, Jesus treated the Scriptures as trustworthy. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we should adopt the same attitude towards Scripture that Jesus did. Jesus affirmed as true portions of Scripture that many people view as mythological, like a literal Adam, for example, and the Noahic flood, and the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, just as a few examples there. The Word of God is truthful. Here's the third word that we need to understand and grapple with today, and that's the word authoritative. Authoritative. Now again, the Baptist Faith and Message affirms here, it says the Bible reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which 
Human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. So for a long time, people have tried to deny and discredit the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture by doing a number of different things, by elevating uh, religious authorities above the Bible. Um, Some will elevate human reason uh, and put it in a place of authority uh, and judgment over the Bible. There are some who deny the sufficiency of Scripture by placing ecclesiastical or church authority over the Scriptures. And in their teaching, they're saying, well, the church gave us the Scriptures, and so it's only the church that can correctly interpret the Word of God. And then others exalt just subjective reason or experience uh, to a position of supreme authority over the Bible. In other words, I, you know, I know that's what the Bible says, But in my experience, and so then their experience becomes the standard. Now think of it this way. If if you're driving out here on Highway 75, and you know uh, that south of the Grayson County line, the speed limit is what? 65, right? Okay. But but if you cross over, then it becomes what? 75, right? You know, like 75? Okay, so let's say that you're heading north on 75 to Sherman. The speed limit's 75. Okay, but let's say you've decided that it's important for you to get there faster than that, and so you're driving 85. Okay, and so you get pulled over. The officer tells you, hey, I clocked you going 10 miles over the speed limit. You're going 85 in a, in a 75, and so upon what authority can that officer then write you a citation? It's, it's the law, right? Isn't that what he's appealing? He's, he represents the law. That's why we call police officers the law many times. Okay, so it's on that authority. There's a standard, in other words. And the law says in this, in this, on this roadway that the speed limit is this, but you've exceeded that. Now, let's say that, um, that, 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 that same police officer the next day pulls you over, and on this day, you've learned your lesson, you, you're only going 73 in a 75. And he goes, I, I know that, you know, like yesterday I gave you a ticket for going 85 and a 75, and I know that the law says that the speed limit here is 75. But here's the thing. In my experience, in my experience, I think it's unsafe to drive this stretch of the highway going any more than 65 miles an hour. So on that basis alone, I'm going to write you another ticket. You're going to be like, are you kidding me? No, there's no way. How is it that you think, based upon your personal experience, that you can write me a citation when that's not the law, right? Well, that's what some people will try to say of Scripture. My experience, my my opinion, should be elevated over and above the authority that is the Word of God. We believe that the Word of God is authoritative in all matters of faith and practice. So when it comes down to it, it's not, what does Brother Mike think? Or, or what, are, what, what are our leaders? Th- no, it's what does the Word of God say? It's authoritative in our lives. Here's the fourth word that we need to understand. Complete. The Word of God is complete. And you may have heard someone speak of the canon of Scripture. What they're talking about is the completed record of God's Word. A canon, is a, it's a list or a catalog of books. Uh, one scholar describes the canon as the collection or list of Bible books that are recognized as genuine, inspired, holy scripture. Uh, the collection is complete uh, of 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books in what we call the canon of scripture. And so scripture is God's inspired and completed revelation of himself 
to humanity and through the providence and sovereign direction of God through the ages, God has preserved for us his infallible word. All right, so the Bible is a complete canon. It's complete. There's no one today that's adding to Scripture. If they are, they're doing it erroneously, and they face the judgment of God. Okay, We don't add to, don't take away. We have the complete Word of God here. Now, what about the witness of Scripture? Let's talk about the witness of Scripture for a moment. There's a historical witness to Scripture, and we could talk for a long time about archaeological discoveries and all of these various things, and and, and there are those who you know, felt like, well, we made this discovery and this discredits the scriptures and all things. That really has never happened. When someone has a clear, truthful understanding of one of these archaeological discoveries, it has only validated the truthfulness and the reliability of scripture. I, I could give you just, just one example, for, for example, is um, the Hittites. The Hittites are mentioned some 50 times in the Old Testament, right? Okay, and there were some who said, well, the Hittite people were just an invention of the biblical authors. Uh, they just, just kind of made up. But no, what, what actually happened then, excavations of several Hittite cities uh, and, and recovery of many of their written records demolished all of those critics' arguments. Uh, it used to be assumed that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, same way, were just inventions of the biblical writers. But then archaeologists found the ruins of these ancient cities southeast of the Dead Sea. Wow, what do you know? I spent some time back in 1994 with a guy named Alan Roberts, um, an Australian archaeologist who had spent a lot of time on Mount Ararat. If that name rings a bell, that's where Scripture talks about Noah's Ark resting. Okay, and uh, and he showed me. I mean, satellite images back even before some of that kind of technology was refined like it is today. And man, you could just and you're like, man, that's that's Noah's Ark. Okay, that would be considered a historical witness to the veracity of Scripture. Then you have the scriptural witness itself. What does the Word of God claim to be? Do you find that it just claims to be good literature? No, it claims to be the very Word of God. You take the Old Testament, for example, Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord, sure, making wise the simple. Uh, the, the, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In Psalm 119, verse 89, it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119, verse 160, it says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. These are scriptural claims that the Bible is indeed the word of God. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, said, The the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And we've already looked at some of the New Testament examples of this very thing. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So the Bible's not ambiguous. It doesn't leave us wondering what it claims to be. It clearly claims to be God's inerrant word. It, it clearly claims to have God as its author. But then there should also be a personal witness. I could give personal witness and testimony today the fact of the the power of the Word of God because it's done a work in my life. It was through the Word of God that I came to understand that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. 
It was through the word of God that I learned that there's a penalty that must be paid for my sin, but it's a penalty that I can't pay myself. It's, it was through the word of God that I learned God came in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay that penalty for me. And so through the writing of Paul to the Romans, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How did I learn that? I learned it from the word of God. And so I hope that each and every one of you could stand today if it was required. And you could give a personal testimony. You could give witness to the power and the effectiveness of the word of God in your life. But let's finally consider this. What is the purpose of Scripture as it relates to us? And you're probably aware of the fact that the Bible is the all-time number one bestseller. And yet still remains one of the least read books. That's sad, isn't it? Some polls estimate that only 10% of Americans read their Bible every day. The numbers are pretty alarming as it relates to that, even among those people who claim to be Christians. It's pretty amazing to me that someone would claim to be a Christian, would have what what we know as God's Word, but would never read it. That's incredible. Now, remember that God didn't give us His Word to just fill our heads with knowledge, Right? No, he gave us his word to change our hearts. So God gave us the Bible so that we can apply it, so that we can practice what it instructs us to do. So let's very simply, as we close this morning, consider what that means for us. Number one, know it. Know it. God expects for us as his children to know his word. Now, does that mean that you're going to have a firm grasp on everything that you find here? No, but we should be making an effort every day to come to a better understanding of the Word of God. And so here's a a great truth to consider. The man who will not read his Bible is no better off than the man who has no Bible to read. Most of us have multiple copies of the Word of God. Many of us have Bibles that do nothing but collect dust. That's the truth of it. But yet we are to know the word of God. So how can a person claim to be born again, to be be indwelt, filled by the spirit of God, who who, who inspired the very words of scripture and yet have no appetite for the word of God? How can a person claim to have Jesus on the throne of their heart and have no desire to receive instruction from the one whom they claim as their master? It doesn't add up. If you have no desire this morning for the word of God, you need to take a long, hard look at whether you are, in fact, a child of God. So if we are truly in love with God, and if we've really been born again, then we will say with the psalmist in Psalm chapter 119, I have treasured your word with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I delight in your commands, which I love. Instruction from your lips is better for me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. How I love your teaching. It's my meditation all day long. Your word completely pure. Your servant loves it. We should know it. But beyond that, we should understand it. Right? Many people read scripture as if it's just good literature. Oh, that's nice. You know, Nice. Oh, that's a good pithy saying. I think I'll put that on a plaque. Or, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I, that, that's, that's pretty much the extent of some people's interaction with the Word of God. Oh, there's a neat little nugget. 
But I want to skip over some parts. You know, they look at it like some sort of a buffet because, you know, that part right there really, I mean, that that kind of gets in my business. But if I just stay over here, you know, it's... Now we're to, to understand the Word of God. Jesus promises us in John chapter 14, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I remember Paul in writing to the Corinthians said that the natural person, the unsaved person, does not accept or, or come to understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand him then because they are spiritually discerned. Um, and so, again, if you, if you make claim to, to being a child of God, make claim to being a follower of Jesus Christ, and, but have no desire to know or to understand the Word of God, something's, something's drastically wrong. And then finally, to practice it. Somewhere along the way, we've picked up the idea that all we need to do with the Bible is, is just study it and understand it. We substituted knowing for doing and, and, and illumination for application. But the purpose of Scripture at the end of the day is action-oriented. It was given to us so that we can do what it says. Remember our study in James recently. James said there, hey, but, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Do the word. Our problem is not just that we don't understand what it says. Our problem is that we don't want to do what we understand. That's the problem. And Jesus put it about as plainly as it could be put in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. And you're familiar with with the text there, I'm sure, where he says, hey, the person who, who, who knows and does and practices my word is like a person who builds his house on a rock. And then when the rains come and the winds blow and all those sorts of things, that house stands firm because it's built on a firm foundation, right? But for those who don't do my word, you might hear it some, you might come to understand some of what it says, but you really don't ever do it. You're like a person who builds your house on the sand. So when the rains come and the floods come and all those things, your house goes splat, as we used to say in kids' church. It doesn't stand firm because you don't have a good foundation, You know, I'm proud of the fact that historically, Baptists have described the Bible in strong language that affirmed the inspiration and the trustworthiness of Scripture as a firm foundation. As far back as as 1900, James Frost was the the first president of what was then known as the Baptist Sunday School Board. Now it's called Lifeway. He wrote this in 1900. He said, we accept the Scriptures as an all-sufficient and infallible rule of faith and practice, and insist upon the absolute inerrancy and sole authority of the Word of God. We recognize at this point no room for division either of practice or belief or sentiment. What, What about you this morning? What is your relationship to the Word of God? Is it just another book on your bookshelf? Maybe you would put it in a, in a little different category, but it's just good literature nonetheless. Or do you view the Bible as the Word of God? 
Again, we're not talking about what, you know, we believe the Bible contains the word of God or the words of God. Are in the, no, we believe that this book is the very word of God. It's inspired. It's truthful. It's authoritative. It's complete. It's God's inspired revelation of himself to us. I'd say that's pretty important, wouldn't you? So do you value the word of God like you should? Are you building your life upon that firm foundation of not just knowing and not just understanding, but practicing the word of God? Are you here this morning and you'd say, well, I, you know, I, in terms of my relationship with God, I, I think I'm okay, I think I'm doing well, I, I think I'm good enough, I'm not. What that tells me is you don't have a clear understanding of scripture. Because the Bible makes it clear that even on our best day, we can't be good enough. It's the word of God that tells us that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. That's not Brother Mike's opinion this morning. No, that's, that's the very word of God given to us. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church Van Alstine. FBCVA is located at 121 East Marshall Street in Van Alstine, Texas, or you can visit us online at www.fbcva.com. Be sure to visit the sermon archive for more messages from this and other series.